Thank you for that prayer. Good morning, everyone. Uh, today we're going to continue our series through the, through the book of James. If you've been with us through the last four weeks, uh, you'll know that we've been uh, going through the sermon series, Live Together, which is really just walking through the book of James chapter by chapter. Uh, we've spent four weeks working through the first four chapters, uh, and, and it, as Tony's challenged you for the first four weeks, and now we'll do again today, we've challenged you to read the, that particular chap- chapter we're focusing on every single day. So this week it's going to be chapter 5, and we want to make that same challenge. As you go home through this week, I want you to read chapter 5 over and over again every day. It's very short, uh, it's easy to read, uh, but I want to challenge you to do that. And as you do, you'll, you'll see different things come out as we go through. Uh, we're going to talk about chapter 5 today, but there's a lot we can't get to. It's, t- it's too big. There's too much going on there. If you were here last week as well, you'll know that Tony talked about the fact that we're reading a letter. That often when we read through the Bible, we break it up into chapters or verses, and sometimes we can lose the fact that things like the book of James was a letter that was meant to be read all together, all at once. That it's got a context and an argument that kind of builds all the way through And so when we're looking at chapter 5, we realize that we've been building towards chapter 5, that the first four chapters of this book have pushed us in this direction. So if you've been here over the last few weeks, you've got a head start on what we're going to talk talk about today. If you haven't been, you can actually go back and hear all the first four messages on on our website or through iTunes if if you wanted to get caught up that way. But like we've already said, we're going to look at James chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible with you, open it up to James chapter 5, and we're going to begin at verse 1. Um, I should know what page that's on. It's on page 979 in the Bibles in the pews. All right, James chapter 5. James chapter 5 says this. It says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and, your, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and your silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded your wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay your workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Whew, that's an easy way to get started, right? If you've been with us for the last four weeks and you hear this, you're, you're probably surprised because this is a pretty dramatic shift from the rest of the book of James. Honestly, it's a pretty dramatic shift from what we're going to see in a few minutes as well. This section of James is intense. Now, the goal that we have this morning is not to break down this entire section, uh, but it is to understand what the point that James is making here in the beginning, these first six verses. And in order to do that, we have to understand a little bit about the book, which we did talk about in week one, but just give a quick reminder. You see, the letter of James was written to an, opposed or an oppressed group of people. It says at the beginning of the book that it was written to the 12 tribes that had been scattered across the world. This is a community that's been scattered, often oppressed, And many of the people that James are writing to are poor or or even struggling to maintain a day-to-day existence. And so what James is doing in these first six verses is acknowledging that struggle. He's acknowledging that many of his readers are having a hard time making ends meet or even finding food from day to day. And he's also acknowledging that in this case that that struggle is unfair, that they're being taken advantage of. 
Because look at a couple things in the beginning of this passage. It says, listen, you rich people, which if we were to stop there should make many of us uncomfortable or nervous because compared to the rest of the world, we're all rich. But we recognize that this isn't a condemnation of all wealth. That's not what he's doing. It is, however, a condemnation of greed. Look at the people that James is talking about. It says, listen, you rich people, weep and wail. Your wealth has rotted. Your money has corroded. You've hoarded for yourselves rather than taking care of those around you. And in that imagery, we're, what we're supposed to get out of that are, is piles of stuff that's being used for nothing. Your wealth has rotted. Your, well, things don't rot when they're in use. right? They, it's, it's, we have a pile of things that just starts to go bad because it's not being used. Your, your money has corroded. We're in, a, we're in a, a society that all your money is actual physical coins. In order for those coins to corrode, they just have to sit there. If they're being traded between people, that doesn't happen. It says you've hoarded for yourselves and there are people around you that are struggling. It goes on to say that you've robbed your own workers, or in other words, or you perhaps haven't paid a fair wage. Clearly, we're talking about people who are greedy in this case. And so James' audience is living in that space. James is acknowledging that reality, but he's also proclaiming that God sees it too, that the cries of the oppressed have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And James is saying that God will take care of that. See, chapter 5 begins by pointing out that in this world there is trouble, that there are people in this world that are, that, that are out for their own interests rather than for the interest of everyone else. It was pointed out in the prayer this morning already, there are people who function on different principles in the worldly wisdom James has been teaching for the first four chapters. Or not the, I'm sorry, the godly wisdom that James has been teaching for the first four chapters. We talked about it a couple weeks ago that James says that there's heavenly wisdom and there's worldly wisdom. And the worldly wisdom seeks one's own interest, that it's, it, that's inward focused, that it's, and it's unspiritual. He even calls it demonic. And so James is saying that there are those out there who function on a different set of rules and they will cause those of you who are seeking to follow God trouble and that trouble very much might be painful. James realizes these things and he actually speaks a condemnation against it. In this world, he says, you'll have trouble and that trouble will be painful. James realizes that. He realizes how frustrating it is, and so he continues on in verse 7. He says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. James proclaims that in this world you're going to have trouble, but God sees that injustice. And so James goes on to say the way of God is valuable, but he understands that it has a slower burn than greed or worldly wisdom does. The blessings of God aren't always instant, James says. He says it's like a farmer that has to wait for his crop to grow. He says, so we too need to wait for good to win out. Now, Renee and I didn't talk beforehand, but her prayer basically said that today, didn't it? That in the end, that we have this big, beautiful reconciliation of all things. It's not instant. 
And, and, be, and on, the pro, on the journey there, there are a lot of things that hurt a whole lot. But James says, wait patiently, because good does win in the end, whether it's in this life or whether it's in the next. Now, James, James acknowledges that this isn't going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. It's going to hurt sometimes, which is why he's going to spend, this, the, spend the end of this letter showing us how much we're going to need each other. He's going to show how important it is for the church, the brothers and sisters in Christ, to stick together to resist and push back against the world, against those who function on different, different rules and different wisdom than what, what, what James and, and God has taught us to. Now, before we move into that, maybe a visual example will help us. So I personally really like nature documentaries. I don't know. Is there anyone else there out there that does too? Yeah. Nature, okay, not very many hands went up. Clearly, I'm a little weird. All right. <laughs> so, uh, so like, I, I like nature documentaries almost too much, uh, but I was actually watching one recently. I was done by the BBC. If you've ever watched some, like, Planet Earth series, they have some spinoffs from time to time, and there was one called The Hunt. And, I, and I, as I was watching this, there was one particular scene that I think really captures what James is talking about at the end of this book. And, and I actually have the clip of that scene here, if we could play that a minute. While the prey's running, the dogs have the advantage. But when the wildebeest stand their ground, the tables are turned. Faced with a wall of horns, the pack is powerless. But not all the wildebeest have had the courage to stop. Now, the real contest begins. The wildebeest are big and strong. But the dogs have stamina. Right now, hunters and hunted are clocking 40 miles an hour. The pack can keep this pace up for miles. The wildebeest can't. Another two. The split confuses the inexperienced pack, sending them in different directions. The mother and one youngster continue on. The rest of the pack stop, believing they have an easier target. It's a mistake. 
Like a beast with two heads, each bull protects the other's rear. And the dogs can do nothing. Ahead, the chase continues. Another wildebeest peels off. Now the mother has just one in her sights. But it will mean nothing without the help of the rest of the pack. The situation here has reached stalemate. The young dogs have lost valuable time. They must try and catch up with their mother. Front, the mother is beginning to tire. And the wildebeest knows it, bouncing to show he's still strong and not worth chasing. But fresh young legs are catching up fast. there's always another member of the team to take up the lead. The dogs now have the numbers to bring the wildebeest down. Now, so if, if you're a big animal lover, I just warning, if you decide to watch it on your own, I stopped it before the end, but they do show what happens at the end, so just careful when you watch it. Now, what's fascinating to me about this clip, though, is that I think that, that this, and I understand that this is animals and metaphors break down, but I think that what we saw there is a good example of what, is, what James is talking about here. There are those who live in this world by a different set of rules, and in this case, we had two different sets of rules, right? We had the wild dogs, and we had the wildebeests. Uh, they, now, the wild dogs seek to take advantage of the weak wildebeests in order to fill their own bellies, Right? Now, of course, there isn't anything morally wrong with what the dogs are doing. Their behavior is part of nature. It's how God made them. Uh, but hopefully you can still see the point. Because what's fascinating to me about this clip is, that, that is the fact that the wildebeests are far safer if they face that outside problem as a group. When they were together, when they stopped and they, they looked outward, essentially that group was impenetrable, right? They said it was a wall of horns is the way they described it. Even those six or seven that ran away, if they had just stopped, you saw what happened when there were only two of them. They could hold off the entire pack, but those six or seven kept breaking apart into smaller and smaller groups, eventually isolating one and then having that one being taken down. If the wildebeest had functioned as a unit, they'd be relatively safe. But when there were divisions in the group, suddenly they all became more vulnerable. Notice that in the, in the hunt, the dogs worked on whittling away one at a time until they were able to catch one alone. They were tenacious. They kept after them. They were able to run longer than the wildebeest, slowly wearing them down. And when they did, if we had let that clip play out, you would have seen that they take it down. Which actually makes the entire herd weaker, doesn't it? The herd is one wildebeest weaker, and that one individual beast was completely eaten. Now again, this is nature and it breaks down a little bit, but this, this a metaphor very similar to this is used in the Bible itself. If you were to look in 1 Peter, he actually uses a similar example. He says the devil prowls like a lion, 
waiting for those moments to pounce and devour. That the devil himself works to separate us, to, to break us apart in order to devour us later. James in his fifth chapter is saying there is danger out there. There are are dogs looking to devour, to separate us. There are lions or the devil or the enemy looking to separate us, divide us, to hurt us. And he says, don't let that happen. He says, you have enough pressure pressing in on the outside to fight amongst yourselves, actually band together and push back. And he actually tells us there are six things that we ought to do to help us with that. One of them we already read in the passage that we read earlier. It says, don't grumble against one another. Now, when times are good, this one's relatively easy. When there doesn't seem to be a lot of outside pressure, we tend to be more willing to overlook the little things within our communities, the things that bug us or irritate us. But many of us know, if you've ever been part of a church situation in which the pressure has been turned up, when people or worldly ideas forced us into positions we wouldn't normally like to be in, People, even in the church, tend to get a little more testy, maybe in particularly inside the church. We tend to blame people or things for the problem. We can break from the group, isolating ourselves or others when we begin to grumble against one another. And just like in the clip that we saw, that's exactly what the enemy wants. Together, if we we work through our differences and push back on the world, we're a force to be reckoned with. Separated, we're all vulnerable. And so James begins by saying, don't grumble against one another. He says, in this world you will have trouble. That trouble will be painful. The world world will press in. And so he starts by saying, don't grumble. He continues on by saying, be straightforward and honest with one another. One of the ways communities can begin to crumble is when we're unable to count on one another, or in other words, we're unable to trust one another. And trust can be lost because of dishonesty or an inability to keep our commitments, which is what James is talking about if we were to read on to verse 12. In verse 12, it says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or on earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. James says, above all, meaning this is an important one. Pay attention to it. It says, don't swear. Just use a simple yes or no. And what does that mean for us? How does that relate to our community? What is he saying? And the subtext here that James is using is he's saying, have good enough relationships with one another that a simple yes or no is good enough to establish trust. And so swearing isn't even needed at all. Right? We're not talking about cursing. We're talking about making like taking an oath. I swear it's true. Those kinds of things. And that can relate to whether we're telling the truth or we're committing to things. Right? What James is saying, that is, if you say something, yes, something is true, that should be good enough. If you say, no, something is not true, that should be good enough. If you're saying, yes, I'm committing to this thing, I'll do it, then that should be good enough. No, I can't do it. Well, that also should be good enough. And we've met people who fit into both of those categories, don't we? We know people that if someone, if they declare something to be true, we just know it is. Because their reputation and the relationship that we have with one another, we know that they just that's what they do. They, if they say it's true, it is, and there is no wavering on that. Same thing as if they say something's untrue or if they commit to something or don't. But we've also met the other kind of person, haven't we? The kind of person that declares something to be true and we look at them sideways. And we have to think about it for a little bit. And we question them and we ask, are you sure about that? 
And they say, no, I swear it. Right hand on my heart. Left hand on a Bible. I promise that what I'm saying this time is true. Left, okay, fine. Left hand on a stack of Bibles. I swear it. We know people like that, don't we? Maybe, maybe if that's something that's convicting to you, that's something that maybe you can work on. Because James is saying in, the, in our communities, he's saying don't live like that. He's saying within our communities, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Which, as some of you know, was originally said by James' half-brother Jesus. James says if we're going to work together against the world, if we're going to be able to press in, we're going to be able to work to, to support each other, he says we're, our communities are going to need to be straightforward and honest with one another. If you say something is true, make sure it's true. If you say it's not, make sure it's not. If you say you'll do it, make sure you do it. If you can't, just say no. So James is saying in chapter 5, in this world that things will press in on you, so don't grumble against one another. Be straightforward and honest with one another. And then continues on and, say, and says, and then also pray with one another. Now this is something we probably all know and yet probably struggle to do. James says, is any one of you in trouble? He says, then pray. And if you were to continue on into verse 14, he doesn't say, he says, don't pray alone. Call people from the church to pray with you. And honestly, in my opinion, this is one of the most important things that we can do as a community, is to pray together over big things and over small things. You see, because in our communities here in West Michigan, and maybe even particular within the CRC, we tend to qualify our needs for prayer, don't we? My guess is we are far, many of you are far more apt to share what you consider to be big prayer items. If someone is sick, or if, some, or if a relationship is badly strained, or we lose a job, or, or something that we consider to fit into that category, Right? Now, don't get me wrong, it is appropriate and good to share those things, but James doesn't put a qualifier on trouble here, does he? Actually, if you were to look at it in the Greek word, it has a far wide range of meaning beyond trouble. Other translations say, is any one of you, is any, is any one of you suffering or experiencing hardship? Right? It's saying that we're talking about a wide range of affliction here or trouble or emotional struggle or whatever. What James is saying is that we ought to pray over the big things, of course, but he's also saying that those things we see as less significant, we ought to be praying for as well. Because honestly, how many of us haven't had a bad day or a week, and somebody says, well, what's going on, and we can't pinpoint why. We can't say it's this, this thing happened. Because the fact of the matter is, it isn't just one thing. It's ten or a hundred little things that have all built on top of each other. Things that have been stretching out over the course of a week or a month and they're just finally getting to us and we're tired or overwhelmed or we're cranky because things feel like they're pressing in and we can't put our finger on what exactly it is. The problem is in those situations often we're much slower to call for prayer. We're slower to share those because they feel less significant than the person who has this big thing. But I can tell you from experience that those are the times, if we're willing to share them with one another in community, not only will draw us closer together as a community, but we will also feel our burdens lightened in humongous ways. 
It's amazing to me each time that I've had to do that, how willing the brothers and sisters in this community and in other communities are, are, how willing they are to listen to you in those spaces and pray with you. James is saying that God desires for us to lay those and maybe even especially those at his feet. Is any of you in trouble? And whatever that can mean, James says, pray and pray with each other. So James chapter 5, you can get repetitive, but sometimes that helps us sink it in. It says, in this world, you're going to have trouble, things pressing in, and you're going to need to stick together to push back. So he says, don't grumble against one another. Be honest and straightforward with one another. He says, pray with each other. And then he goes on and says, and also sing with each other. Now, we're called to carry each other's burdens. That's true. It's very important. But we're also called to share our joy. James says, is anyone among you happy? then let them sing songs of praise. So I just wanted to ask a question. Have any of you ever been in a terrible mood, like a really bad one, like one of those really, really sour moods, and then somebody around you started singing a happy song or a joyful song? Think back to that a minute. What happened? When someone started singing that song, what happened? At first you might have gone, ugh, but then as they kept singing, all of a sudden, what happens, right? It's difficult to remain that grumpy, isn't it? You can't help it. You start to smile. That song kind of gets inside of you and does something, doesn't it? It's hard to stay grumpy. Honestly, this is one I have a lot of experience with because my wife has this gift. Now, I hope most of you don't have to visit her at work. She works, she's a cancer nurse at Metro Hospital. But if you've ever been in her office, chances are you would have heard her singing. She's kind of like a jukebox. Right? Somebody says a, a phrase or something and she just kind of jumps on it and sings a song. And I've heard from many of her patients and co-workers that that joy is contagious, right? So, these, so a lot of these people are in that difficult spot, and we get why. But that joy that kind of comes out of her kind of creeps into them. And that's a really, really powerful thing. Now, I'm sure, of you, sure there are some of you saying, Brent, if I start singing, no one will be joyful. I get that. I understand. That's my wife's gift, not mine. And the point of this passage is not that Christians should be constantly in song. That's not the point. The point is that when we are happy or cheerful or joyful, we ought to share that with one another. Whether that's through actual song, and if that's something you're good at, I encourage you to do it, or just declaring God's goodness in our lives to our brothers and sisters. Is any one of you happy? Share that joy. It could easily be the same idea. It's so easy for us in this world to focus only on the bad things, on the troubles or the pain, but we need to hear how God has blessed us in our lives as well. Because when we see God's hand at work, whether it's in our own life or in someone else's life, that gives us hope. And we know that faith, hope, and love are the big three in the spiritual life. When we see God's hand at work in our lives or somebody else, it gives us hope. And that hope gives us the strength we need to persevere through the difficult times that are inevitably coming. And so James says, in this world you will have trouble your world is going to press in and you're going to have to stick together to push back out. So he says, don't grumble against one another. Be honest and straightforward with one another. Pray with each other. Sing with each other. And then goes on to say, confess to one another. If we read in verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint, their, anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And a prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord's, Lord will raise them up if they have sinned, and they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, there is a whole lot we can say about verses 14 all the way through 18, and we stop at verse 17 there. But honestly, we would need an entire other sermon to tackle them. And my guess is that some of you might leave wondering about healing prayer because it's, that's one of the passages that gets brought up when we talk about that. And there is a conversation to be had about that. We just don't have time to do it this morning. So I want to focus on something else going on in those verses. By the way, if you want to talk about that, feel free to come talk to me about it any time. But what I want to focus on is something else that's going on in those verses. And that's the fact that James is commanding us to share our sin struggles with one another. He's saying when we're praying together, it's appropriate to share what we're struggling with in regards to sin. Confess our sins to each other, he says. He says this is a big part of our spiritual health. And he may even be suggesting that it's closely tied to our emotional and physical health as well. And in the context of healthy community, that's a huge deal. How does confession influence our community? Well, confession does something really, really important. When we confess our sins, it humbles us. It forces us to be honest with ourselves and with each other, and that matters immensely within communities. First, confession forces us to be honest with ourselves. If we don't spend intentional time thinking about the areas in our lives in which we fall short, It's very easy for us to think that we are better than someone else. It's very easy for us and it's natural for all of us to begin to think of our sin as a small deal or very insignificant and look at somebody else's as a big deal. It's easy for us to value things because we do ours, oh, well, that's nothing. That's not a big deal. It's over here. Don't worry about that. But this person, have you seen them? Confession to one another forces us to actually speak our faults into the air. And that gives them the weight that they deserve. It forces us to deal with them at face value and what they are. But ironically, it also simultaneously opens us us up to be truly forgiven and begin to work on restoring those. We've been looking at how we ought to help carry each other's burdens, and if we're really practical here, there's another part of this. If we're going to help each other work through difficult things in our lives, the things that cause us the most pain, how are we going to do that if we're not honest honest with each other about where sin has built strongholds in our lives? It's impossible, right? We realize that when we confess to one another, we create a space in which we can actually begin to restore one another in Christ. But open confession does one other thing as well. It creates a collective humility. It makes us realize how much we need each other and how truly broken we are all together. Because we also know that it can be very easy for us to collectively begin to think that we are better than other groups in the world. And we know that churches throughout history have struggled with this. We can start viewing church as a country club in which everybody comes when they've got their lives put together rather than a place that it ought to be, which is a a place filled with broken, hurting people. When we confess to one another, we acknowledge that we are all still on this journey and we all still struggle with sin. And that change in perspective will drastically affect the way that we present ourselves to those around us. Whether, Whether it's those who come through our doors who don't yet know Jesus or those who just come into our space looking to see what we're all about, or even how we treat each other 
We'll stop pretending like all of our lives are perfect and realize that we all need each other. Now it's true, confession is difficult, and honestly, it's something that we, me, aren't very good at. Sure, we can confess things generally. We do it almost every church service here, and that's good. Right? God, we're all sinners. We all fall short, and we need forgiveness. Generally speaking, we're decently good at that. And that's not bad. We ought to keep doing that. But when is the last time that you confessed a specific sin with details to somebody else? And I'm speaking, convicting myself at the same time, because that's not something that I like to do either. My guess is that many of us don't do that very often at all. And James is saying, start making that a habit. Now, that is going to require a few things. It's going to require bravery and vulnerability. This will not be easy. Whenever you have to take an honest look at the areas in which you fall short, that's tough and will cause pain. It's not going to be easy. It's going to require bravery and vulnerability. It will also require you to be honest with yourself and God. This thing that I like to pretend is not a deal actually is. And finally, it's going to require all of us to receive these confessions with humble, grace-filled hearts. James says, confess to one another. And then he says, pray for each other. We confess to each other not so that we can create a list of who's good and who's not. We confess to each other because then it allows us a space to pray for each other and humbly restore one another, which actually leads to the final thing. James says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Don't grumble against one another. Be honest and straightforward with one another. Pray for each other, sing with each other, and confess to each other because you need to use those things to press against that trouble. But he closes by saying, and finally, watch out for one another. You see, in the entire letter of James, he's shown us that this faith thing that we're trying to do, this living faith that we're striving for, is a difficult, lifelong journey, one in which we're going to need to persevere through trial, one in which we're going to need to seek the wisdom of God, one in which we're going to need to be constantly vigilant of how we treat one another and how we speak to one another. James has shown us that we need to be aware of our own desires, as we talked about last week, to prevent quarrels amongst us. James has said you need to draw near to God because there's an enemy, and, he, and when you resist him near to God, he will flee. James has shown us in this chapter that there are those in this world who don't care to live the way of God and, have, and, have, and have actually are trying to take advantage of those who do. We've seen that we have an enemy who is actively working to pull us away from God. And so James, through this entire book, has said to possess a living faith isn't easy. It's hard, and so we're going to need each other, which is why I think James ends the letter in the way that he does. Verse 19, he says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the way of error will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. What we see here is like a wildebeest wandering away from the herd. When we wander away from the truth of God, we're in danger. And so James says to the entire community, watch out for one another. He says, if someone is wandering from the truth, call them back. Not so that we can judge them, but because it's actually dangerous. Because sin does damage in our lives. It hurts. It makes us vulnerable to pain. Right? Because why do we work through sins in our life at all? So that God will love us more? No, that's impossible. He said, while we were still sinners, he loved us. We work through sin in our lives because God, or we work through sin in our lives because sin actually hurts. It actually causes pain. It actually pulls us away from the fullness of life found in God, and we ought to care about that. 
We ought to care about it for ourselves. We work our own personal sin out because it will lead us to a fuller life. And we ought to care about that in each other, not because we're better than them, but because we say, this person is wandering into danger, and because I care about them so deeply, I want to pull them back into the fullness of life found in God. If a wildebeest wanders from its herd, it's in real danger. We saw that in the video. If a brother or a sister wanders from the truth, they are in real danger of practical pain and sin in their lives. So James says, life is hard. There's an enemy who is seeking to destroy you, which is why James has called us to live together. We have enough pressure pressing in from the outside to be fighting amongst ourselves. He says, work it out amongst yourselves. He says, don't grumble against one another. Be honest with one another. Pray for one another. Sing with one another. Confess to one another and finally watch out for each other. So that together, we like the farmer, can diligently work towards the fruit of God that is coming slower perhaps than we'd like, but that is coming and we will experience it in this life and ultimately like Renee prayed earlier, prayed earlier today where we experience the fullness of it in the next. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for the way of wisdom that you've given us, for the heavenly wisdom that you promised to each of us. Lord, we know that in this world there is trouble, and Lord, help us to be patient and persevere through that. And while we do, create in us a love for each other so that we can do this life together, that we can help each other produce a living faith that draws us nearer to each other and ultimately and most importantly draws us nearer to you. pray all of these things in your name through the power of your spirit. Amen. At this time, uh, we would like to invite the deacons to come forward. Uh, we're gonna, we will be taking our offering uh, for church ministries in the Christian Education Tuition Fund. Uh, so 